0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Take Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Every Black person in America already knows that Donald Trump is racist. They know that. There is no way to escape it. They knew it in 2016. And yet that is not a motivating force to get to the polls, particularly in a moment where Black people are without sanctuary. Their very lives are under assault from all different angles.
1: Hello and welcome to The Grand Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. Uh, before we start today, you, our viewers, you listeners, I guess it is, uh, you are what make the show go around, and we have a request for you to help us hopefully make a show that you will like even better. Um, and that is, as you hear on podcasts every so often, to fill out a short survey so we know a little bit more about who you are and what you want and how your listening habits have changed over the past few months and, you know... Just, just, we want to be in communication. You hear a lot from me. We need to hear a little bit more from you. Uh, so go to voxmedia.com/podsurvey. Again, that is voxmedia.com/podsurvey. It will really help us make a show in the future that is more the kind of show you want and need, um, and hopefully a show even more people will will want and need and enjoy. So again, that is voxmedia.com/podsurvey. But today's show uh, is, I really, I'm really glad this one worked out uh, on the timing. So. If you watch Republican National Convention, as I did for my sins, one thing you noticed is that in a party that is more than 90% white in terms of its voting population, they presented a very diverse face. I think something like 40% of the speakers were were non-white. In particular, there were a lot of African American speakers making arguments on behalf of themselves as politicians, making arguments about the, the failure of democratic governance, making arguments about Donald Trump, why he either wasn't a racist or even better, like is the right choice for the black community. And this got treated as a very cynical like tokenism play in some quarters or even just a a bid to make uh, white Americans feel less racist for voting for Donald Trump. But there's also a very deep history of this. And the Black Republican and Black conservative and a lot of uh, Black voters, about a third self-identify even now as conservative, is an important force in American politics um, and one that is sort of constantly argued over, but often in, in very poor and uninformed ways. The person who does not talk about this in poor and uninformed ways is Lea wright Berger who is an assistant professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She's a historian by training. Um, her book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power, is just a, a remarkable history of Black Republicans for the 20th century, of the Republican Party's efforts to win over more Black voters as Republicans, over the way the Republican Party has been unwilling to change policy to actually make that happen, right? Always wants it to be a messaging thing or something else. But the, the, these debates and, and issues have echoed throughout um, and the way the Democratic parties responded to them. This has shaped a lot of our politics and understanding it well um, and in the depth she does, I think is really helpful for seeing what's going on in this election right now. She has also for years taught a course on protest and riots and political backlash, which could not be more relevant right now. And so we also discuss that. Um, it's a great conversation. I won't spend a bunch of time introducing it and said we'll get right to it. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Leah wright Leah wright welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I actually wanted to start with the report Ralph Bunch wrote for the Republican Party way back when. Tell, tell me the context of that and, and what it recommended.
0: So at the time, Ralph Bunch is a political scientist. He is a teacher at Howard University, a professor at Howard. Um, He goes on later to be a career diplomat of sorts, and he wins the Nobel Peace Prize in the 1950s. So he's this this really kind of, uh, what we might call revered uh, figure in black politics, but also in American politics, particularly in American statesmanship and statescraft. And here he is in the 1940s, working with the Republican Party. Now, he's working with the Republican Party not out of any kind of affinity for the Republican Party, but more so out of concern for the idea of two-party politics and where Black people fit within that two-party political system. So he had been really upset about the New Deal. He felt like the New Deal hadn't gone far enough for Black people and that there had been elements of the New Deal that had essentially been racist. So when the Republican Party reaches out to Ralph Bunch to do some consulting work for them saying, you know, how do we get black voters to come back into the Republican fold? Ralph Bunch agrees, but he agrees only on the condition that when he finishes his final report on this, that the report be published in its entirety. And that's really where things start to get interesting, so to speak.
1: So as a little bit of context here, before we get into what the report actually said, the issue that he is working within is that in the folk history of American politics, I think people believe that the racial realignment happened around the Civil Rights Act. But particularly for Black voters, it happened earlier around the, the New Deal. The Black voters were heavily Republican before the New Deal, and then they began to swing Democratic after it. So what happened there, and then how does it lead to the Republican Party asking Bunch for his help?
0: So there's this idea that, you know, African-Americans leave the Republican Party in the 1960s. And to some extent, that is true. And we we can talk about that uh, in a little bit. But the really interesting thing here is that, you know, there's this great book by Nancy Malkiel Weiss uh, called Farewell to the Party of Lincoln. And one of the things that it does so well is points out that African-Americans leave the Republican Party in droves, the Party of Lincoln in droves in 1936 during Roosevelt's second term, second election. And they leave because of the economic impact of the New Deal. So that first term where black voters do not vote for Franklin Delano Roosevelt they actually experience the policies, the plans, you know, the procedures, the programs of the New Deal in ways that uh, affect their day-to-day lives and in ways that affect their day-to-day lives that allow them to overlook the history of discrimination of the Democratic Party and the persistent segregationists that are within the Democratic Party myths. On top of that, Black voters really are affected by, you know, the civil rights activism of Eleanor Roosevelt. So you get those two things combined, right? The the way in which the New Deal actually benefits Black people, because many of the New Deal programs are colorblind, and the civil rights activism of Eleanor Roosevelt, and you see a watershed change, watershed movement. And so the Republican Party notices this almost immediately, and they start up all different kinds of drives, you know, how to get Black voters back. What do we do about this? And so in 1939, when they're beginning this relationship with Ralph Bunch, they reach out to him because we, they say, we have to be able to compete with the New Deal and with the Roosevelt administration. We're bleeding voters. You know, Black voters are still affiliating as Republicans, but they're not voting Republican anymore. So how do we change this?
1: And so what does Ralph Bunch recommend to them?
0: So Ralph Bunch gives them this comprehensive report, this really detailed report on where the New Deal has failed. And he essentially says the New Deal hasn't gone far enough, that the New Deal has had discriminatory practices and, you know, policies ingrained in, even in some of their most effective programs. Right? And he goes into great detail about this. But he also says, you know, the Republican Party has not done enough right? The Republican Party should be going further in its kind of policies and programs, and they can no longer rely on the spirit of Abraham Lincoln, quote unquote, freeing the slaves in order to, say, move Black voters. So he argues in favor of all kinds of policy changes, right? All kinds of differences. He says you need to be more effective on, say, health care. He calls for universal health care. He says you need to be more effective on, say, social security, relief, finance, agriculture, labor, right? So all of these different areas, he says, there is room for the Republican Party to make inroads amongst Black voters by speaking to the very issues and needs that Black voters uh, uh, want. And he's very also, he's also very um, explicit about the need for these programs and policies to be economic, right? Now, what is interesting, though, is that the Republican Party gets this report. And initially, they say, wide praise for it. They say this is what we need. This is exactly what we need. But remember, Bunch put in this, you know, uh, kind of caveat saying either you publish the report in full or you don't publish it at all. And so when the Republican Party comes back and says, well, we want to publish the parts where you attack the New Deal, Bunch says, well, no, you can't do that. He says you have to publish the entire thing or not at all. And so they end up not publishing it at all. But bits and pieces end up being leaked to the press, particularly the black press and the black media. And so what we see is bits and pieces of this report proliferate. And it comes to be known, particularly as Bunch is making the rounds talking about this report, that really the Republican Party has a blueprint for how to move African-Americans back into the party, but they're unwilling to do it.
1: I love this story. And I was so struck reading it and reading it and thinking about the the, the current Republican Party, because it seems to me that it's been the same question for a long time now, that the Republican Party wants to win back Black voters or wants to win more Black voters. But what they, they want, what they would like is for there to be an easier way to do it than to have to change their policy agenda to meet the actual economic and social needs of black voters, that they, they keep looking for a message or like an orientation or a messenger. But every time somebody comes to them and says, look, the African-Americans have a very high uninsurance rate. You need a better idea for what to do about that than the Democrats have. They say, no, no, not that we want we, we, we want some other way of addressing this.
0: Absolutely. So one of the interesting things about, you know, the blueprint that Ralph Bunch provides in the 1930s and 1940s is that it remains the blueprint for the Republican Party and its kind of what we might call racial consultants right on up until the present day. And so there are a couple of things, that I think, that are takeaways from that Ralph Bunch uh, piece. Right? The first is that he says, you cannot run with both hare and hound. So what does that mean? Right? That's actually the title of the chapter <laughs> in my book. But he says, you can't run with hare and hound, meaning that you have, the Republican Party has to decide whether it wants to court, say, the dissident white vote Of the in this case the Democratic Party and rely on racial antagonisms on the backs of Black people, or do you really want Black voters? Right, you cannot seduce both. And in the case, I think of Black voters. That idea about policy, particularly economic policy, is the one that is really, really important over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century. So, you know, in 1970, uh, 76, 77, 78, when we see Wright McNeil and Associates, which is a black Republican consulting group, consulting with the RNC, they say virtually the same thing that Ralph Bunch has said in 1939 and 1940. And they say, you know, we have to find a way to make these ideas palatable or attractive to Black people. Because right now, Black voters are making a pragmatic vote, even in cases where they don't like Democrats. Right? So even in cases where they might be more aligned religiously, right, spiritually, what have you, with the Republican Party, they will not choose the Republican Party because, one, they believe Republicans are racist an antagonist, racially antagonistic. And two, there are no policies that they see affecting their day-to-day lives for the for the positive. So it's the two things that go hand in hand. And all too often, we see that Republicans recognize this, but they're unwilling to make either one of those kind of significant structural changes in order to actually get a significant population of the Black vote.
1: I want to go back to the can't run with hair or hound because it's super important. So one of the things happening in this period, uh, and this particularly becomes true in the mid-century period, is that the Republican Party begins to see an opportunity with Southern whites angry at the Democratic Party, which has been totally dominant in the South, angry at the Democratic Party for adopting a more pro-civil rights agenda, um, uh, angry with some Democrats for pushing, say, uh, anti-lynching laws. And then there becomes this tension of whether you're going to try to appeal to these southern whites who are driven by racial by racism, um, or you're going to try to try to win back black voters. And in many ways, this same tension seems to me to be present in the Republican Party today, that there's this constant desire among Republicans rhetorically to appeal to, to black voters. Something like 40% of the RNC speakers were, were non-white. So long as the Republican Party is going to make its base and its core appeals to the most racially resentful whites, um, there is just a, an, an ineluctable tension at the the heart of it. You 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 can't do both, and that like you can't do both seems to me to actually be one of the decisive drivers of how the party coalitions form and change in in, in mid-century and then up until the present day. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that how that evolved?
0: Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that um, the Democratic Party somehow at, at, at a certain point in time manages to have white segregationists and black people in it at the same time. This is kind of one of these burning questions that Republican strategists, particularly in the 1930s and the 1940s and into the 1950s and 60s, are really trying to wrestle with, right? And as they think about, you know, how do we get disaffected Southern white voters? How do we get white segregationists? How do we, you know, even Eisenhower is thinking about in the RNC during that period is trying to pour money into, you know, how do we amass that group that the Democratic Party has managed to do, right, through the New Deal coalitions, one of the things that they're not really paying attention to, or at least ignoring at the very least, is how economic issues function. And so the NAACP, um, and uh, there's this really great political scientist who works for the NAACP, Henry Lee Moon, who do all of these studies. And one of the things that they find is that even in the early 1960s, Black voters are still saying that the Democratic Party is the party of, you know, racists. And they're not seeing that much difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party on civil rights. But when they're asked about economic issues, Black voters overwhelmingly, by 1960, overwhelmingly say that the Democratic Party is the party of the working man. And white working class voters, white laborers, white, even white segregationists, are saying the same thing. And so this is that very fragile connection that allows the Democratic Party in the 1950s and the 19 early 1960s to consist of white segregationists and black people at the very same time. You know, it also uh, matters, too, that there are regional differences. So when we talk about voters, Black voters in the 1960s, we are by and large talking about, you know, pre-Voting Rights Act. So we're by and large talking about Northern, Upper Western, you know, Northeastern voters. We're not talking about Black voters in the South because they can't vote. And so the ideas are very different, too, about what Democrats mean in the North versus the South, right? Northern Democrats have formed an alliance or an allegiance with Black voters, and so that matters. But what Republicans are really looking at is this idea of can we balance, right, these uh, Black voters who have been off and on loyal to us for, you know, nearly a century, and can we bring in these white antagonistic voters? and what they i think fundamentally miss is the economic piece that ties all of this together. And so what we begin to see particularly in the mid 1960s is that the Republican party begins diverting money away from spending on, you know, African American outreach or black outreach and towards recruiting white southern voters, right? And it has all kinds of different names and actually it predates, you know, predates the 1960s. It happens in the 1940s and the 1950s. But we what I see as one of these really important drivers is that essentially the Republican Party makes this decision. Several uh, people within the Republican Party make this decision to go hunting where the ducks are. They say black people are a lost cause. We're never going to get them back. So let's go after disaffected white voters and find some way, particularly this idea of racial resentment, to in order to bring them into the Republican Party. And that's where we begin to see really significant shifts and changes.
1: So that pre-1965 Democratic Party, let, let, let's look at that coalition for a minute. Is that just an unstable equilibrium? So that what, what is happening there is that you have racist Southern whites. I mean, you have the Dixiecrats, you have an, an increasingly a majority of, of, of Black voters, And the Democratic Party is doing enough on economics to hold that coalition together, but not enough on civil rights for that coalition to break apart. Um, The Southern uh, Democrats in the Congress, they run the House Rules Committee. They run virtually every important committee because of seniority. And so they're able to just bottle up these bills. And then the, the standard story here is that, you know, Lyndon Johnson, Civil Rights Act, the Democratic Party finally steps forward, makes a choice on which direction it's going to take, beats over the the Southern resistance in Congress to do it. And that's what ends that coalition. Do you Do you buy that narrative?
0: I don't necessarily buy that narrative. <laughs> and I say this because there's so much unevenness, even dating back to the New Deal, where Black voters are in and out of the Democratic coalition. You know, I think about that moment where Truman issues the, uh, that really significant civil rights uh, report, right, to secure these rights, where he desegregates the armed forces and where we see, for example, uh, civil rights included in the Democratic Party platform. What happens? Dixiecrats break off, and that allows room for Black people to come into the party. But a couple of years later, under Dwight Eisenhower, Black voters come flooding back into the Republican Party. Why do they do that? Because of all of, these, uh, all of these changes around Brown v. Board of Education, and they are essentially punishing the Democratic Party for their failures on civil rights, right? So 40 percent, Dwight Eisenhower in 1956 gets 40 percent of the black vote. And they do it because they are punishing the Democratic Party for their failure on civil rights. And so I think we see a lot of that back and forth, particularly in the South, right on up through the 1980s. And so one of the things I think we can point to is that even as Republicans are saying, you know, we're going to take over the South, we're going to get the Southern vote, Southern bloc vote, and they do in some ways get the deep South vote. They don't wholly get those, uh, we don't wholly get a realignment, uh, start getting a realignment until the 1980s. And even that is a a far more fragile realignment. A lot of it has to do with the economic issues. So we still see that interesting coalition of black White Southern voters, segregationists, all the way through the 1980s, in part because of that idea about the party being the uh, the Democratic Party being the party of the working man. It's really not until Democrats start moving away from working class issues, right, and sort of towards these kind of atari Democrats or technocrats, that we begin to see these white voters move solidly into the Republican co- column. Part of the argument that I, I make. In my research is that there is far more volatility within the political process, the two-party political process, than we account for. And that's actually really important because it suggests that even as we say, oh, this group is monolithic, this group is monolithic, there's far more room for chaos in these systems than we allow for.
1: Do you, this is going to jump us more forward than I was planning to go. And and so I'm going to track backwards in a second. But do you think that coalition is possible today? Do you think that there is, say, a Democratic Party that holds, you know, 85, 95% of the black vote and also wins over the kinds of white voters who are voting for Trump right now because it emphasizes economic issues in a different way?
0: I think there's a small cross section. (laughs) <laughs> that they can win it over. Uh, you know, this is, this is historians hate speculation. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons why, um, even though political scientists love it. But I think one of the things, um, one of the things that you can point out it is, is that it is possible, but it may be happening in a different way. So when we look at the breakdown, for example, of the 2016, you know, various voting patterns, we see that, um, you know, white women with advanced degrees went for the Democratic Party. And so they're starting to actually behave much more like like Black voters in respect to rejecting kind of the, the racial programs or policies or, you know, rhetoric, um, the aesthetic of the Republican Party. So I do think that there are allegiances and alliances. What remains to be seen, and this could actually be really interesting— you know, to kind of test out or to explore, is can they win over some cross-section of white, you know, working class voters? I think the answer is yes. We know that they can win over, we know that the Democratic Party can win over poor voters. But, you know, I think they can make inroads into that kind of poor, uh, that middle class, working class uh, demographic that has gone so strongly for Trump. But- at what point do they do it? I think at one, it has to be a point where they are suffering, right, where the suffering is so much in the Democratic Party has provided policies, economic policies that affect that suffering, right, and speak to that suffering. But otherwise, that racial pull is really, really strong. Um, the other thing that I'll say is, you know, I'll flip it. There's, There's been a lot of conversation about, well, could the Republican Party ever win over a substantial number of Black voters. We're not talking about like 90% because that's just not going to happen. But could they win, say, 20, 25, 30%, 40%? And so my argument has always been that it would take something akin to the New Deal. The Republican Party would have to put something into effect that is similar in scope and effectiveness to the New Deal. And that was Bunch's argument all those years ago, too. You have to do something big and broad. What that would look like in 2020, I'm not quite sure. Um, You know, sometimes I say, you know, if Trump wanted to and and passed universal health care, that could be the thing. That would be, you know, New Deal-ish in its its scope. But it can't simply be these kind of symbolic gestures. And this is true also for the Democratic Party. It can't be simply these these symbolic gestures about winning over, you know, this is what we do, this is what we represent. There actually, actually has to be, you know, meat and potatoes policies But specifically economic policies that affect these targeted groups, because you're not going to just do it through rhetoric alone.
1: So wild to me to hear to hear the Opportunity Zones come back. Um, One thing I just want to touch on uh, on on black voters in the Republican Party there that I think a lot of people don't know is that about a third of black Americans self-identify as conservative. If you ask them liberal, moderate, conservative, about a third will say they're conservative You've done a lot of work on this. What is that? What does Black conservatism look like? Is it different than what white Americans think of when they hear the term conservative? Um, or is it conservatism as the Republican Party tends to define it?
0: So the Republican Party for years has been, actually for generations, has really been trying to deal with this issue, right? They, they look at the numbers. Everyone can look at the numbers. That number about Black people who identify as conservative has been pretty stable over the duration of this timeline. And they say, well, why aren't we winning over black people who self-identify as conservative. Well, one, black people's definition of conservatism may not necessarily be the same definition that, you know, other racial groups use to define their conservatism, but in particular white conservatism. There's often a difference. The other thing to think about is that there have been a, a lot of studies done that show that black people, no matter how conservative they are, for the most part, by and large will not vote for Republicans if they believe that Republican to be racist, right? So race matters, particularly at the national level, right? The national, uh, the presidential level. And so what we see is that African-Americans may be conservative in terms of, you know, the policies that they support, in terms of their religiosity. In fact, African-Americans exhibit the highest level of religiosity of any group within the United States. But, All of those things rarely, if ever, translate into partisan support for the Republican Party. So just to give you an example, you might have someone who is deeply, deeply conservative in the mainstream sense of the word, but they will not vote for a candidate, no matter how conservative they are, they will not vote for a candidate if they believe that candidate to be racist. And so this is what the Republican Party has run up against time and time and time again. And in fact, when we look at the profile of who is a Black Republican, right, and who are Black people who vote Republican, it doesn't actually uh, or doesn't necessarily mesh with that profile of who are Black Americans who self-identify as conservative. So it's this big kind of hodgepodge of, you know, what are attitudes around conservatism, but then what in reality triggers Black voting behaviors, and so there's a real, I think there's a real important difference. And in fact, so I did a piece a couple of years ago on, you know, what does a Black Trump supporter right, demographically look like? And we found that that Trump supporter, that Black Trump supporter was, you know, uh, stereotypically a Black man, which— meshes with a lot of what we've actually seen in the past couple of, uh, not just the past couple of years, but past couple of weeks especially, Um, but tend to have this idea of what politics is, very cynical idea of what this politics, uh, what politics means, and tends to be alienated from both political parties. But we don't see, you know, say that religiosity, these large church organizations, things like religious organizations that you would stereotypically think of, right? Black voters don't look a lot like, uh, say, white evangelical voters. So there are significant differences. And I think, you know, to boil it down to it, Black conservatism looks and feels a lot different from white conservatism, even as superficially we say that they're the same thing.
1: And you had said a few minutes ago that you thought for the Republican Party to win 25, 35 percent of the Black vote, it would need something like the New Deal, a huge economic program that really changed people's material existences that implies to me and you can tell me if this is a misread of uh, of what you're saying that the black conservatism has a more social dimension to it i would normally think of something like the new deal as anathema to economic conservatives right they don't want the government doing all that much they they want it to be small individual freedom you know people rise and fall on their own personal responsibility but one of the Republican Party's constant arguments is that the way they will be able to appeal to Black voters is that Black voters, as you mentioned, are religious, are often religiously conservative, um, you know, have views on things like abortion and gay marriage and social change that line up uh, more often sometimes with parts of the Republican Party's social agenda, and that that's the wedge. So is that the kind of conservatism that is more Potent, But that one of the problems for the Republican Party is that it is paired with less skepticism of the government acting economically.
0: So absolutely. I You know, one of the things I think to tease this out a little bit is that what we find is that African-Americans can hold conservative views that actually match with, you know, what white conservatives use. So, say, abortion, you know, um, LGBTQ rights, things like that, and compartmentalize that and say, no, we're still not voting for Republicans. Now, we might vote for policies that reflect that. And we do see this scattershot across the board, or we see it in public opinion polls. For example, the you know um, there have been a couple of public opinion polls that show that African-Americans have slightly uh, more conservative views on you know trans rights and things like that. But when it comes time to check the ballot box for politicians, African-Americans will not vote for a candidate that they believe to be racist. They will not vote, by and large, for candidates that have affiliations with the Republican Party because of what they see the Republican Party representing. They're willing to sidestep some of those conservative views in order to vote for Democratic candidates. Now, what's also interesting to me is that that tends to be the profile of older African-American voters. Younger African-American voters are actually becoming more liberal than what, you know, we've seen in the past. So that presents another line (laughs) of, you know, uh, of problematics for the Republican Party that hopes to recruit Black voters in. I mean, this past election cycle, young Black voters supported Bernie Sanders in very large numbers. How is the Republic the Republican Party can't compete with that? Right? They can't compete with the message, the message launched by Bernie Sanders. They can't compete with this idea of right economic universalism or economic inequality. Because frankly, their policies don't mesh with that. But what we do see is that there are some African-American voters, and this is what often sometimes translates into support for the Republican Party, particularly African-American voters uh, roughly 30, ages 35 and older, who are attracted to the economic policies of the Republican Party. So we do see support for that, and I don't know if you, if if uh, anyone caught this during the Republican National Convention, there was a lot of emphasis on superficial economic policies as a means of appealing to black voters. The problem is, just like the religion that only appeals to a certain cross section, a very small cross section of African American voters. So the best thing that Republicans did in 2020 is start centering their appeals around criminal justice reform, because that's something that has widespread support amongst African-American communities and is distinctly different from traditional Republican stances in the past. Will it be effective? I don't necessarily know that it will be effective because they still, Republicans still have to deal and address you know, the issue of racism within their party. So you can't simply sidestep you know, the racism or the racist behavior, the racist rhetoric and champion criminal justice reform, there also has to be a way in which you are addressing and solving for the racist, you know, behavior and things like that.
1: The Ezra will be back after a short break. I want to hear what you thought watching the Republican National Convention. They they made a big effort to center uh, Black voices um, and Black speakers, uh, keynote speakers like Tim Scott. They had a lot of um, uh, Black Americans standing up to say, Donald Trump isn't racist. I want my community to be safe. He's a guy who can get it done. When you watched that, what did you think their theory of Black voters was? And did you think what they were doing was effective and I guess in the third question is, did you think it was actually aimed at black voters or as many people um, argued, it was aimed at reassuring white voters that voting for Donald Trump was not a racist thing to do?
0: So I think there are a couple of things to separate out. I think the rea- the general reaction to the you know diversity push at this year's convention um, actually echoed a lot of. The diversity push at the 2016 convention. Um, you know, the 26 conven- 2016 convention was remarkable because it had you know roughly the same amount of black delegates and alternate alternates as 1964. Right, so the lowest percentage in really um, you know two generations. But it had a lot of performative aspects. One person, if you know, if you're watching the 2016 um, convention and same goes for 2020, you're watching the uh, Republican National Convention in 2016 or 2020, you might say, wow, look at all of this diversity. Look at all of these representatives. And in fact, I think in 2016, they actually did a better job in terms of roll call, right, in terms of nominating the president, in terms of representation of diversity. I distinctly remember, you know, a Black man and a Black woman at at different points saying, we, you know, nominate Donald Trump. You know, this state goes for Donald Trump. And we didn't so much see that this year, although we did see a lot of speakers. And yes, a lot of this was aimed at kind of squelching crushing this idea that Donald Trump might be racist. We're going to counteract this with lots of, you know, representations of diversity. I think the one that to me was was the most uh, uh, profound was the one the naturalization citizen uh, uh, ceremony with with new citizens, right? So we had this kind of rainbow of representation, saying, "Well, look, Donald Trump can't possibly be racist, and he can't be a xenophobe because he's allowing all of these people into this into the country, uh, you know, so so generously, so thoughtfully." But I do think it came across as superficial. It came across very surface level, particularly when we then had these cutout moments looking at the actual body and the, um, the groups of Republicans across the country. There was very little representation. And I always say that the, the real true test of representation is how many delegates and alternative uh, alternates to the convention are people of color, and in this case, black people. And again, the number is very low. It's always very low. And because there is a, you know, quote unquote, diversity issue. Now, in terms of, is it effective? I think it's too kind of early to make that judgment call about, is it effective? But the kind of thing that was, I think, very, uh, came across very powerfully is something like Tim Scott's speech, where Tim Scott went to great lengths to really talk about his experience, personalize his experience as a black person within politics, and not so much connect it to Donald Trump, because Tim Scott knows that connecting it to Donald Trump with regard to black voters is a losing proposition. But instead, to connect it to his experience within the Republican Party, but in particular, his experience with mass incarceration and criminal justice reform, which people have know that this has been Tim Scott's thing for several years, along with economic inequality. And so to make it essentially a story, an uplift story about his personal, individual, independent journey and path within the Republican Party. That's the kind of thing that historically has been effective in swaying Black voters and African-Americans, when Republicans can distance themselves and establish themselves as independent from these kind of racist elements within the party. That's, I mean, wholeheartedly, that is where Republicans tend to do well with Black voters, when they are seen as independent of the party structure. So this is why something like Tim Scott's speech uh, comes across as the best, I think the best and most memorable of the Republican National Convention and talking about the Republican Party. Um, the other thing that came across, I think, and this is something that I think Republicans again have been trying to really hammer, hammer home, is something like Alice Marie Johnson, who came up and again really tried to speak about her experience, her individual experience. And detach it from, say, a Donald Trump or the Republican Party. So it's almost apolitical, which seems a little weird because it's, you know, at a political convention. And certainly Donald Trump has had, you know, no problem using Alice Marie Johnson to bolster his case about, hey, I can't be racist. Look at Alice Marie Johnson. But what she did, I think, that was re- really quite um, uh, really quite savvy is to say this is about the issue of criminal justice reform. And I want to detach it from the obvious of the Republican apparatus, instead say this is a human rights issue. And that's the kind of thing, again, that people feel, can be, feel attracted to. Now, what I do know, I don't think this this is any kind of sincere or comprehensive outreach effort to African-American voters. Because we know and we have the data based on 2016, right? We know that almost no money was put into Black outreach in 2016. We know that in 2020, right, the uh, Republican Party has said that they view Black women as a lost cause and that they want to focus on Black men and that their goal is really to depress African-American turnout because African-Americans, by and large, vote for the Democratic Party. What I think that Republicans understand is that Black voters are important. Black votes matter. They don't necessarily know why they matter or why they should matter or what is the best strategy to actually bring people into the party. But they know that they matter for winning elections. They have always known that they matter for winning elections. They especially they even know that black women are critical for winning elections. And I think this is really important when we think about the kind of strategy that the Trump campaign and the Trump administration has really been putting into their racial outreach efforts.
1: Uh, I want to know quickly for people who don't know who she was, is Alice Marie Johnson is um, somebody who President Trump commuted her life sentence um, after interventions by, among others, Kim Kardashian and and Jared Kushner. Um, and I agree with you that that was actually one of the more powerful speeches during the convention. But But one other thing that was in the convention, and that I hear from Republican strategist types is that their view is that the Democratic Party has become captured by, I don't know what to call, like the black activist class. And that some of the slogans that have taken off in the Democratic Party, like, or among at least some liberals, not shared by, say, Joe Biden or, or Kamala Harris around defunding the police or, or, More aggressive changes to how policing and uh, order is kept in cities are, they think, unpopular with older black voters and will be unpopular in these cities themselves. And they think that one way they can peel off, you know, again, not 85% of black voters, but 15, 20% is by being the law and order candidate because there are a lot of black Americans who live in these cities that are, you know, seeing a lot of tumult and maybe they'll trust Trump to, to to restore order when they won't trust Democrats to do so. Do you think there's any validity to that theory?
0: So, you know, what's interesting about what's interesting about this is, you know what older Black voters like less than they like, you know, the kind of tumult or chaos in the city? Uh, racism. <laughs> so I think this is one of those factors. You know, there is traditionally, again, and there have been a number of studies that have pointed this out, but there's traditionally been this idea that older Black voters are really concerned with crime in their communities. They're really concerned with law and order. I mean, Vernon Jordan had conversations with Republican candidates about this in the 1980s, where he was like, yeah, Black people are really, really concerned with law and order in their communities. But you know what else they're concerned with? Justice and ending racism. So when you hear us say, well, we're concerned about what's happening in our communities— we're not actually saying, you know, uh, and this is this is what voters are are saying over and over again, but we're not actually saying, oh, yes, we want to increase police presence in our communities or we want to give a pass to police officers who shoot our community residents in the back. No, instead, what they're saying is, we want to be treated equally under the law. We deserve representation too. And we certainly do not uh, deserve to be, you know, killed without, impu- you know, with impunity by police officers, that our communities have not been treated well by the institution of the police, right? So we have been failed over and over and over again. So when you hear, when audiences hear law and order and they hear Trump going in on law and order, it's very much a, a dog whistle for them. In fact, it's not even a dog whistle. It's a, it's a megaphone, <laughs> right, about what he actually means. So the idea that this could be really attractive to Black voters is is, to older Black voters, I think is one that isn't actually based in the data, the evidence, even the public opinion of what Black voters are saying right now. If anything, in this, there was a moment where, you know, it seemed really interesting. In in 2016, when Philando Castile was uh, murdered by a police officer, there was a moment where Donald Trump seemingly came out and said something empathetic about that death. He said, wow, it looked tragic. And it looks—it certainly looked like the, the officer was in the wrong. And that is the kind of thing, coupled with actual police reform and investment in communities that, are, uh, that Black audiences, particularly older Black audiences, are interested in. So it can't simply be this cut and dry law and order in the same way that you were speaking to white audiences, because it's just not going to work. It's far more, you know, I almost said it's far more complex, but it's actually not. It's actually simple. It's simply about... Fairness, justice, and getting rid of the racism.
1: I want to come back. I'm going to put a pin in in urban protest for now because we're going to come back to because you teach on that and and I want to dive into that in some detail. But but before we leave uh, Black Trump voters, I want to talk a bit more about some of the numbers there, that piece you did a while back on who the Black Trump voter is. My colleague Jane Koston had a piece earlier this year looking at the gender gap in the Black community when it comes to supporting Trump. So exit polling from 2016 shows that 13% of Black men voted for Trump, but only 4% of Black women. Then there was a Wall Street Journal-NBC poll, which might have been a little bit of a a strong result, but they found 24% of Black men approved of Trump's uh, work in office, while only 6% of Black women did. Do you have any thoughts on why this gap is so significant?
0: There are a couple of things. And um, Ezra, I'm going to toss out an idea too and feel free to engage the idea <laughs> or say, oh no, I can't, I like I'm not there yet. Despite everything that I've said, I don't think it is outside the realm of possibility that Donald Trump gets something like, you know, 18 or 20% of the black vote. I think 20% is a little high, but 18%. And I say that because between 1964 and the present, you know, in presidential elections, Republicans consistently have gotten anywhere between, you know, 4 percent to like 15 percent of the black vote. That includes Ronald Reagan, who the majority of black voters argued, you know, were racist. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, so the majority of black voters saw Ronald Reagan as racist. And yet he still managed to get somewhere between 13 to 14 percent of the black vote in 1980. So when I say Trump, it has the possibility or the potential to get, you know, say, 15%, 10%, 18% of the Black vote. That should be seen as part and parcel of this longer Republican trajectory of where there is room to, you know, to get Black voters. And the majority of that, it comes back to this point that you made, the bulk of that is coming from this gender gap. Black women really, really, really do not like Republicans. They just don't. Right? and Republicans actually understand that even as they understand that black women are really important to turning out black voters and the political process right and so this is actually why we see a number of Republicans but especially trump using black women as surrogates especially during the political process but they understand right there's an understanding that black men um, make up the majority of trump voters right so they have far more, you know, uh, far more leeway to give when it comes to Donald Trump. There's no leeway whatsoever for Black women. So I think the gender gap is important and it also meshes up with these ideas that we talk about. So Black men, for example, are, you know, more likely to support ideas of machismo within politics. They're also more attractive to these ideas of, you know, uh, these rhetorical ideas, but especially these criminal justice ideas. Black women pay extensive attention to policies and policy decision-making. And so that is what really guides their vote and their ideas uh, about voting. But then also, these kind of Black Trump supporters, so these Black men who make up Trump supporters, are not so much interested in policy, and they're also not swayed by accusations of racism, particularly because most, uh, most of them and many of them believe that both parties, both political parties, are racist. So if you believe that both political parties are racist and that, say, Joe Biden is racist, but in different ways than, say, Donald Trump is racist, and you're not swayed by actual policies that people are presenting, but more so about rhetoric— there's an op- there's more of an opportunity, right, for movement into the Republican Party or at the very least for supporting a Republican candidate at the national level. So this is why gender differences matter. There's a real difference in the way that, say, Black women and Black men are viewing the political process right now. And I should also offer a disclaimer that even as I'm saying that Black men are more, you know, the Trump voters are more likely to be Black, black men, uh, the disclaimer is that Black people, by and large, do not like Donald Trump, right? Out of out of every racial group, they express the the most dislike for Donald Trump. So we're still talking about a very small cross cross section of black voters, but it is important to note that there is a gender difference between these two groups.
1: Yes, it, it, it's always worth saying that it's not just white men, but also white women voted for Donald Trump. Um, and that is not true for, for either gender category for, for Black voters. Um, this tracks back a bit to our conversation, though, about Black conservatism, because something that is striking that you've written is that Black women are more likely to self-identify as conservative than Black men, and yet much less likely to vote for the Republican candidate. And, and that always strikes me as a, as a fascinating uh, reminder there that what those labels mean is bigger And maybe also more specific than what the parties mean when they adopt those labels.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, it's really fascinating. There's this there's this wonderful study done by a scholar named Angela K. Lewis about black conservatism. And it's, it's really quite uh, quantitative. So a quantitative study of what Black conservatism looks like on the ground. Um, I'd also recommend Corey Field's uh, book on Black Republicans, which is also a quantitative look at Black conservatism, but also Black Republican politics. But what's interesting about, say, that Lewis study that was done a couple of years ago is that she finds overwhelmingly that the profile of Black conservatism is a Black woman, a Black Southern woman. And yet, and so one of the things that I was able to do is go back and track how that looks on the ground. So what does that look like? And one of the things that we see is that in a number of these, say, conservative Uh, Black conservative organizations—they're being powered by black women, right? So black women are doing all of the labor, even though a black man may be the face of the organization. Black women are sending out the pamphlets. Black women are putting together these crime organizations, these anti-crime organizations, and providing awards to you know local police stations and things like that. Black women make up these various churches, particularly these conservative churches, even as the face of the church, right? is the mega pastor, the conservative Black mega pastor. But then when it comes time to vote, Black women are resolute in not voting for Republicans. So even as they are powering these organizations, these institutions, perhaps even some of these policy changes on the ground, they are still committed to not voting for Republicans In part because they understand Republicans to be racist. So, their race, this idea of racism and conservatism are intimately intertwined, which is that Black women, particularly even Black women who self identify as conservative, who are being, you know, who are powering these conservative organizations and these efforts, racism and race still dictates their professional and their presidential decision making. And so I thought that was really incredible. One of the things that came out is that Republicans kind of picked up on the idea that, well, it's Black women who are conservative, but they could not get past the idea or get past the, you know, the problematic that these conservative Black women are not voting for Republican candidates. Now, what's uh, uh, what's interesting to me, though, is that some, I think someplace where this is showing up, particularly amongst older Black women who self-identify as conservative, is that it is showing up for support for centrist Democratic candidates. So, you know, when we look at something like Joe Biden and how Joe Biden is propelled into office, in part with the with the strong support of black women in the South, that's where that conservatism is coming out to play. Right? They they're looking at him and they're saying, well, here's someone who's not radical. Here's someone who's nice, centrist, safe, not risky, who is a white man who can fight against Trump. Right? Same thing, I think, when we look at, say, the vice presidential nomination around uh, Kamala Harris. There was an enormous amount of support for Kamala Harris uh, after the VP announcement amongst Black women, especially older Black women. Right? That's that's part of the target demographic. And part of that, I think, speaks to the way in which Black conservatism operates and works for Black people on the ground, particularly Black women.
1: And is an something that So I wrote a book on polarization, and one of the things I was exploring in that book is why is the Democratic Party operated so differently in a polarized period than the Republican Party? It has moved left in certain and important ways, but in a lot of ways, it has not exhibited the warping, the anti-system tendencies, the narrowness of, of what's happened to the Republican Party. And this was a very big part of my answer, that the Democratic Party is this diverse coalition. And where among white voters, what happens is that white liberals go into the Democratic Party, and white conservatives go into the Republican Party, and moderates get split. Among black voters, among Hispanic voters to some degree, among Asian voters to some degree, uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition that includes conservative voters. It includes black conservatives. It includes it includes Hispanic conservatives, and that has a cross-cutting effect on it. That it it has people in it who will not let it go quite as far into one ideological direction as a Republican Party that's more both racially homogenous and ideologically homogenous.
0: And I think, so I think one of the things that's that's true here, and we saw this in 2016, 2016 is the first time we, I, I think that we see the fracturing of the Democratic Party into all of these coalitions on a broad stage, right? In a lot of ways, Barack Obama and Barack Obama's presidencies obscured these fractures. But those fractures have been there. I mean, they—they they, again, you know, I mentioned earlier that one of the things that is remarkable about the history of the Democratic Party is that it's been marked by chaos and volatility over the generations. And I think that much is true, particularly as we see that there hasn't been this kind of—there's not a homogenous— You know, Democratic Party right now. I'm struck by I think it was um, I think it was AOC who said this, and it might have been another member of the squad, but I'm pretty sure it was AOC who said this. Who said, you know, if we were in another country, we would probably not all be in the same political party. But because there is a two Joe
1: Biden would not be in her party.
0: Yes, (laughs) that's what it was. But I I was struck by that. She's absolutely right. They would not be in the same party. And so one of the things that the Democratic Party was able to do for a very, very, very long time is to make those coalitions hold, right? You know, it might have been a thin veneer of glue around the edges, but they were able to make those coalitions hold. And one of the things that we're seeing, that we are seeing actually, and we be- we began to really see it under the Obama era when turnout among, say, like youth begin to drop in 2012 or when we began to see a number of protests erupt, right? So Occupy Wall Street, right? But also the Black Lives Matter protests that erupt starting in roughly 2013, 2014. This is evidence of this kind of fracturing that is really important that the Republican Party simply doesn't have to deal with on this stage, right? Republican moderates, Republican liberals get pushed out of the party. They get pushed out of the party very quickly. And I think what we're seeing is that Somebody like Mitt Romney, who once, who a couple of years ago was the pinnacle of conservatism for the Republican Party. We're being told that there's no home for him in the Republican Party anymore, which makes it very clear that there are boundaries and that as the Republican Party evolves. The Democratic Party hasn't gone through that yet. And instead, what we see is this kind of fracturing that's happening amongst all of these coalitions and playing out on a very, very big stage. And so that is part of, you know, this, I think this is what you're part of what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and kept in place a bit by one, currently loathing of Donald Trump and to the recognition that to win back power, they'll have to win much more than a majority. The Democratic Party's geographic disadvantage is a disciplining force on its strategic decisions whereas the republican party's minoritarian pathway to power where it can win the house the senate and the white house and never win a majority of the vote in, the popular vote in any of them um is an enabling force on its from one perspective, crazier, from another perspective, um, more extreme uh, strategic decision making.
0: One of the things that has been really just fascinating, um, you know, I think some people would say insane, is that, you know, in the in the foreseeable future, the Republican Party will win elections without being, you know, without winning the popular vote. That's remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable. But please continue.
1: (laughs) And and so I was just going to go from that, that one thing that Democrats think about having happened in 2016, so the dominant narrative was that they lost because they lost white working class voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And that is true. And it is also true that they lost because black turnout fell, not dramatically, but slightly from what it was under Obama to Hillary Clinton. And if they could reach the that that previous height, they would have also won in those places. I mean, it was a very close election, so a lot of things can make the difference. But when you were watching, I've asked you this question about the Republican convention, but but I want to ask it about the Democratic convention too. Part of their goal is to uh, cohere their relationship with Black voters and 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 excite turnout back to where it was under Obama levels. When you watched the Democratic convention, given what you know of the history of the Black vote, what did you think of it?
0: So I'm going to say something that may you know may get me in trouble, may be controversial. Yes, terrific. <laughs> But I think one so we're of always th- looking for on the show. <laughs> one of the things that the Democratic Party has consistently overlooked, including in 2020, is black men. There's no cohesive strategy about bringing black men across age groups into the Democratic Party and rooting them in er, rooted in enthusiasm. And I say that because by all, you know, by all um appeals, the Democratic Party is doing what they should be doing, right? So they have speakers. They're talking about Donald Trump's racism, Donald Trump's racism, Donald Trump's racism. But remember the thing I said about how these kind of black male Trump supporters, but also black uh, non-voters, one of the things that is really important about them is that they're not necessarily motivated to vote based on the basis of Donald Trump's racism. That is no longer enough. And so when I say that, people are like, Are you insane? Right? Are you are are you nuts? Do you see, you know, Donald Trump is a racist? What do you that's what we should be emphasizing? That's actually not necessarily what you should be emphasizing in this moment. Every black person in America already knows that Donald Trump is racist. They know that. There is no way to escape it. They knew it in 2016. And yet that is not a motivating force to get to the polls, particularly in a moment where Black people are without sanctuary. Their very lives are under assault from all different angles. And I think about something like George Floyd, right, in that George Floyd moment, and why it was so powerful. And it was powerful because it was a representation of the ways in which America, across the board, across politics, across political parties, has failed Black people. Now, what's really important, again, is that gender gap, because Black women, that is a motivating factor. They will get out there, they will vote. That is enough to propel them to the polls. But for Black men, particularly Black men in urban centers that are now swing states, think about Detroit, that is not enough. And so, one of the ways that you appeal to disaffected voters, voters who feel alienated, voters who say, I am not, I'm without sanctuary, is through policies, particularly economic policies. And we did not hear a lot about that specifically, how it relates to Black men. So, that to me, is one of the areas that is easy to overlook during this campaign and was easy to overlook in 2016, but is really, really, you know, at, at, at a spot where Democrats can do much, much better and they have to do much better, particularly if they want to generate Obama level turnout.
1: The Ezra Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Let's talk about the George Floyd moment. You've you, you were telling me before we started here that you've taught this class on riots and protest and race for over a decade, and that you have to change it every three months because the situation in the country changes so much. You have Occupy, um, you have Black Lives Matter, now you have the, the the racial reckoning following George Floyd. What do you see right now when you look out at the country with the level of historical background you bring to this? What 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 does it look like to you?
0: So I think the protest that we're seeing right now, essentially, is America coming to a racial reckoning. We are on the cusp of a racial reckoning. I won't say that we are there, because I still think there are, you know, it is a fragile racial reckoning, and there are many different directions that this could go in, particularly as we, as we move into the 2020 presidential election. But the protests that we're seeing right now are a direct result of essentially the failures, the historical failures of America and race. It is coming to a head. It's been building for quite some time. I mean, it's been building for generations. But the idea, you know, I think one of the things that is encapsulated through these protests, but particularly this is why George Floyd's um, death resonated so much, is because what we're talking about is a system that has failed on every single level for black people. And I'll even say for more widely for underrepresented groups, for marginalized groups, right? So George somebody like George Floyd becomes symbolic of the larger racial inequalities that we have in our society. And so I'll, I'll give you just a couple of examples, right? When we think about something like the economy. The and, and and the irony of talking about the, you know, a booming economy in a moment where black economic employment is sky high is is not lost on me, right? But it's an economy that has not worked for Black people, that's left millions underemployed and unemployed. So we think about George Floyd. George Floyd, why is he in Minneapolis? He's in Minneapolis because he's looking for work when he's murdered, right? When we think about the failures of the American healthcare system, one of the things that struck me about George Floyd is that the autopsy report showed that he had COVID 19 in his lungs when he died. So, you know, it's like I can't even escape, you know, uh, because of the healthcare pandemic and the health pandemic, uh, national pandemic that's happening, and global pandemic, before I get killed by the police, right? And then we're also seeing, I think, essentially, the failures of political institutions. Now, this always gets me in trouble, particularly since I'm supposed to be coming from a a public policy background. But this is about the historical and continuing institutional failures of public policy, public officials, public institutions in the lives of black people. Right. So all of this comes together in these protests. That's what we're seeing in these protests. It's not simply about, oh, George Floyd. But it's about Breonna Taylor. It's about Ahmaud Arbery. It is about all of these individuals in a history, the history and the weight of racial inequality in this country. That's why we're continuing to see protests. That's why we'll continue to see protests. And I think irrespective of who wins the presidential election, but particularly if Trump wins the election, we will continue to see protests on kind of an epic level.
1: A huge amount of how people have absorbed the protests in terms of What they have thought they're motivated by, how they have talked about the political system's response or lack thereof, and then what they think the political effect of them will be has been through analogy to protests that happened in the 1960s and 70s, because many people who are analyzing these lived through those. How much do you think that's a useful historical analogy?
0: So in some ways, it is useful in terms of getting people's attention. So if you say to a group of people, we're right back in 1968, it gets them to attention, right? Because we think, Martin Luther King Jr., we think, you know, RFK, we think about the 1968 Democratic National Convention, we think about, you know, the the Kramer anti-riot provision in the 1968 Civil Rights Act, right? We think about law and order. We think about Richard Nixon, all of these things that immediately bring to attention people's, uh, and people's minds. We also think about the fact that through these protests and through these riots, we get enormous change. Now, it may not be the change That's necessary. But certainly we discuss change, right? The Kerner Commission report, right? The National Report on Civil Disorders that comes out in 1968. But we also get the 1968 Civil Rights Act, which is really important, I think, for a number of different issues, but especially for fair and free open housing, right? And ending discrimination in public and affordable housing. So that's really important. With that said, I think there are really big differences from previous protests and previous eras. When we've seen previous protests and protest movements, um, but also I would say, you know, eras of, of violent uptick or riots or things like that, they have by and large have not been multiracial movements. They've largely been restricted, racially restricted. The one area I'd, I'd give a, you know, kind of pushback on this is 1992 Rodney King. That was a multiracial riot or uprising. But in terms of the, the contemporary protests, what is new and what I think historians and political scientists are pointing out, what's new about this is the global scale of this and then also the way in which this has become a multiracial protest. Like you have white people marching in the streets. You have white people all of a sudden, right? More than 70% of white Americans now say Black Lives Matter. They couldn't do that two years ago, right? Let alone 1968. So something is changing And in the body politic that is really important doesn't mean that we'll actually get significant change that much. You know, I'm not a fortune teller, (laughs) but it does mean that we are on the cusp and that there is the possibility, the fragile possibility of change, of significant change. And again, we have the blueprint in front of us Right, the Kerner Commission, the Kerner Report gave out, you know, hundreds of pages Of suggestions and solutions on what to do. So we do have a blueprint before this because we've, you know, in some ways been here before. Right. This is not new in terms of what is going on within the American, you know, the American nation. This is just the chickens coming home to roost and a new group of people participating in the protests and in the movement. So I think this is, you know, it's useful to say, yes, it does draw on past movements. But there's also something new and really important and significant about that newness in this moment.
1: There are two threads of the change argument that I've been seeing going around. One is the idea that um, protest and this kind of confrontation, even when it does at times turn violent, it is a necessary pressure on the political system to get it to address the the voices that are unheard. And the other that you've also heard is a fear that will bring about the opposite kind of change. Um, Donald Trump clearly thinks it might lead to his reelection. Um, there have been fights online about whether or not, uh, working around the, the research of Omar Waslow and others, whether or not protests helped uh, elect Richard Nixon back in the day. And at the same time, the electorate is very different today than it was in 1968. The Democratic Party is very different. How do you see that balance between protests being a force for change and also being a force for for backlash and, and, and particularly if they turn violent status quo?
0: So I think it's both. But I also think it's important to actually remove the idea of protest from the discussion around does protest motivate you know the backlash vote or does protest you know motivate instill you know this kind of like progressive movement or movement back to the democratic party or essentially to move it out of electoral politics because i think one of the interesting things about protest is that it exists irrespective of the electoral moment right you know when Freddie Gray is killed in 2015, when he's killed by the police in 2015, it inspires Baltimore to burn, right? and that's happening under a you know an ostensibly progressive president, Barack Obama. And then I think, so I think that is actually important. And I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily tie that to say the 2016 election or something like that, but instead to a reflection of how people are feeling and how they are uh, exhibiting that and expressing that in a particular moment. What I do know is that protests, even, even violent protests, what we might call violent protests, has actually helped instill change. It often becomes the only motivator for change, even as it instills backlash. And so that's why I say, you know, the 1968 moment. 1968, everyone, you know, I, I think everyone compreham- com- comprehensively agrees, is kind of a backlash moment, particularly with the election of Richard Nixon. Although George Wallace would have been much more of a backlash candidate <laughs> winning or something like that. But I do think, you know, we overlook the fact that those protests actually bring significant change at the federal level, right, through the Federal Civil Rights Act. It also instills change at the local level through various kind of fair housing laws that end up passing around the country, even in the South. Protest is a necessary component of change, which is why I like to remove it from the kind of electoral politics equation. And it's a necessary part that often is not pretty, right? Protest never, you know, takes the shape that we want it to. Um, So I do think that is an that's an important way of looking at it. And that's the way that I've tended to look at it. So when people are like, well, we shouldn't people shouldn't protest. One of the things that is really important about what's happening right now is that you cannot tell people how to protest. You cannot tell people not to riot because they will riot. Right. That is that that is part of the American protest tradition. And I think about, you know, like the Boston Tea Party protesting. And rioting is as American as apple pie.
1: I really appreciate the way you you make this argument that it can do two things at once. Um, one of my great frustrations in, in American political punditry is that we always want something to be right or wrong, good or bad. It does one thing but not the other. And the idea that it can do both seems really important to me. I mean, even looking right now, you, you mentioned what happened in the, in the sixties and the sixty eight civil rights act and, and, and the Kerner commission. Although that, I think leads ultimately to less change than one might hope given the, given the ambition of that report. But even here, it's been striking to me. Um, there was a lot of criminal justice reform talk at the Republican convention. Uh, Tim Scott, if you look at his criminal justice bill right now, it looks like what the Democrats were pushing a couple of years ago, and the Democrats are voting against it because it is not as far as they want to go now. But it's a hell of a lot further than Republicans were going a couple of years ago. You know, even Donald Trump and, uh, I think it Don Trump Jr. talked about, uh, the Don Trump Jr. and specifically talked about the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, like as a as a murder, as a problem. Now, I'm not a fan of where the Trump administration stands on on these issues, so my point is not to to make an argument on their behalf, but it is to say that It has this quality or it can have this quality of simultaneously changing the shape of the discussion, even as it um, creates backlash in electoral politics. And it's a little bit hard to know how that story ends up playing out. But I I think it's important not to not to forget that both things happen simultaneously. Like maybe it does give Republicans a bit of a boost. And also maybe it changes what Republicans say, do and believe.
0: Well, I think one of the interesting developments over the last couple of years has been this Small Republican movement, you know, for criminal justice reform, right? And it largely comes through the lens of libertarianism, and it's still quite conservative in terms of criminal justice reform, right? They're not calling for defunding the police. They're not calling for the shutting down of all prisons in America, right? It's still a very, you know, and they're still very delicate. We know that the, um, you know, the the Redeem Act that uh, Cory Booker and Rand Paul proposed a couple of years ago ultimately failed in part because there was a breakdown in terms of, you know, well, what does what do we do around white collar crime? Well, what do we do around violent crime or something like that? Right. So there's there's a very different understanding of criminal justice reform on the left and the right. But there's been this really fragile bipartisan consensus. And I think it is remarkable given that, you know, the uh criminal justice or mass incarceration crisis and the kind of militarization of the police has actually been was actually a bipartisan project as well so of course the solution in some ways has to be a bipartisan po- uh, project but it also has to be a bipartisan par- project in an era where you know the federal government and is expanding its reach and where donald trump has has been willing to stonewall things just because he doesn't want to do them right so it is important that there has been an element of crimin- criminal justice reform even Coming out of the White House. But one of the interesting things here is that for the White House, it seems like they want to have their cake and eat it too. And so what I've been struck by is that they're making an argument around criminal justice reform. You know, there was this point where I think it was Vernon Jones, one of the RNC speakers, who says, you know, Donald Trump ended mass incarceration for Black men, right? Which was like clearly an overstatement. I, you know, that's news to me. But, um, <laughs> but it's interesting that they're making that argument. And then in the next breath went on to say, fund our police, support the police, right? Those two arguments seem like they should be at odds. And for the Republican Party, it's more so about taking advantage of the fractures within the Democratic Party and picking up those threads to say, yeah, we can have our cake and eat it too, so we can say that we are or you
1: can run with you can run with hound and hair.
0: Exactly, you can run with hound and hair because it is you know part of this argument is we can abolish mass incarceration or elements of mass incarceration while also ramping up mass incarceration. And to us, it's not hypocritical. Because it's a rhetorical device in a lot of ways. You know, one of the things that is really interesting to me about the Trump administration is that they tend to be very transactional, right? So even in their racism, they are transactional in their racism because they think that they will get something out of that. So it it tends to be really, really clumsy, right? It's not the kind of smooth, like, Uh, you know, polished racism that we've seen in the past. It's like Donald Trump getting up and being like, okay, people will really like if I call Callan Kaepernick, you know, a son of a, you know, something rude. And that is a transactional understanding of his racism because it's kind of like throwing things out out there. But the mass incarceration part that they support is transactional as well. So we see this when George, when um, Trump at his rally, at one of his rallies says, you know, George Floyd, The stock market, you know, I'm sure George Floyd is looking down from heaven and cheering because the stock market is through the roof because it's transactional. He says, you know, George Floyd is something that, you know, people seem to be really upset about and maybe I can get something from this if I shout him out, but also shout out the economy because that's my real bread and butter. So a lot of this, and and I think the other part of this is really trying to take advantage of these fractures and these fissures within the Democratic Party where they feel like they will lose ground if they call something out. So if you come out really, really hard in favor of the protesters, they're afraid that they're going to alienate, you know, suburban white voters that might be on the line. But if you don't come out in favor of the protesters, or if you don't come out, you know, uh, hard on this criminal justice reform uh, line, you're going to certainly lose, you know, young uh, young voters who are really passionate about these issues. So how do you navigate that? And the Republican Party is really trying to take advantage of that.
1: One thing that I want to draw out that you were talking about a minute ago is the idea that protesters are not actors in Electoral politics, or at least do not intend to be and cannot be usably treated as, as as such, because I see this all the time um, um a f- small fraction of the country protests, and then a m- small fraction of protesters are involved in riots or, or, or violent protests, and there's always this question of like what will the politicians say? what will they do? What will the mayor do? What will Joe Biden say? How will Donald Trump treat it? What are they doing? Are they making it hard for Democrats to win in, in in 2020? And I'm not saying these strategic questions aren't real. It's just that it always strikes me as a truly impossible question for the politicians who are somehow asked to control the situation because it is not under their control. Like there would not be these protests if the public if the people who are protesting thought that politics was a usable means for their issues to be addressed. And so it just I understand why say Donald Trump wants to use them politically. You can't get away from that. But it, it does strike me that um a lot of the particularly political commentary conversation about them wants to treat this as some kind of policy problem inside the realm of what politicians can usefully respond to when it almost by definition operates outside of it and you need to find some broader response. You're not going to be able to do something very effective the Tuesday night of the protest. You would either have had to stop it before or you can answer it after. But there's only so much you can do in the moment.
0: Right. So and and I I don't I, I think this has been my frustration as well. Like there's there's some kind of idea that, you know, protests are a political chess piece and then protesters are going out there and thinking, yes, if I do this, It'll definitely, you know, we'll, we'll get Joe Biden elected or we won't get Joe Biden elected. That's not what they're thinking at all. And this, you know, this goes back to that point that I, I, I made, uh, that I made earlier, which is that protesters and even rioters to some extent are responding to the failures of public policy, public institutions and politicians. In moments where there's a healthy democracy, there are high numbers of voters really, really, really high numbers of voters. So we can look at various countries and say, oh, they have a healthy democracy because they have really high voter turnout. One of the things that strikes me about the, New- uh, the United States is that we traditionally do not have high voter turnout in terms of like comparative to other countries, other you know d- democratic countries. We have a high, high level of non-voters, which says that something is not working right in our democracy, that our democracy is not functioning, quote unquote, as intended or as envisioned. And so this is why I think, you know, it's it's actually useful for me to say I want to step outside of that framework and to think that we can have a debate about, you know, is protest good? Is protest bad? No, protest is just is. Protest is a reaction or response to the failures of democracy. And that's, you know, that's what I think— you know, people can take advantage of it. They can drive, use it to drive up fears. They can use it to talk about, you know, this is the failing of such and such system. But the reality is what protest is trying to do is actually point out the flaws in our democratic system. And so by doing that, it has to exist. It, it, just by its very nature, it has to exist outside of that, you know, that framing that pundits try and put on it.
1: I think that's a good place to, to come to a close, speaking as a pundit. um, So let me ask you the question we always use to end the show, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience?
0: Well, I think given the nature of our, uh, our conversation, there are a couple of books uh, that I would recommend. So the first one is uh, Megan Min- Ming Francis. And Megan is a uh, political science professor at the University of Washington. And her book is Civil Rights in the Making of the Modern American State. Came out a couple of years ago, but I really love it because it's essentially the history of a protest movement, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and how they actually end up shaping the civil rights movement. But the really important part about it is that she documents how the NAACP fails. So she talks a lot about failure because failure is critical to understanding how they ultimately succeed. The next book that I would recommend is by Lily Geismer, who is a professor at uh, Claremont McKenna College, and it's called "Don't Blame Us: Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party." And if you want to understand the fractures, the fissures, the craziness of the modern Democratic Party, but also the transformation of the Democratic Party, uh, uh, you know, particularly as it moves into this kind of professional class, and really how we get to the moment that we're in right now, I think it's crucial that you read Lily's book. Um, And it's a really just wonderful treatment of a lot of these issues, particularly economic issues that we see playing out in the American political landscape right now. And then the last book that I want to recommend and many of your readers may have, I mean, listeners may have already heard of this book. It's it's gotten a lot of press. But it's Carol Anderson's One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And I think one of the things that's really important about this book is that she uses history— dating back to the 1860s to really talk about how democracy has failed for Black Americans. And so she uses the idea of voter suppression, but she also talks about voter depression and about the power of the vote, but also the failure of the electoral system and the democratic system and really protecting the rights of African Americans. And she goes right on through to the present day. So it's a really pressing issue, not just for, you know, the 2020 election, but really in thinking about democracy in our nation and really the healthiness or the, the lack thereof of, of democracy and the pressing ideas of inequality that face our nation. So those are my three book recommendations.
1: Those are great. Um, Leah wright your book is The Loneliness of the Black Republican. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us today.
0: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you to Leah Wright-Rigueur uh, for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. To Roger Karma for doing excellent research on this one. Uh, to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show. is a Vox Media podcast production.